short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. People, I think, is good people. They are. They have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies. Welcome back to the Cold War Show, episode 52. How are you, buddy? Doing okay. Very excited. In a couple of days, we'll be deep into each other's eyes. I wasn't sure where I was going to go with that. (laughs) Having the time of our lives. Ray will be jumping on a plane with his family in, uh, I think, three or four days from the time we record this to come to Australia. And I was just saying to Ray, I've, I've... chatted to a couple of our huge fans in the last couple of days here in Brisbane. Oh, huge fans, huge. I say, you got your ticket to Ray Day? They said, what? I said, you know, Ray will be here in a week. What? Oh, well, look, I'm so behind. Like, we've been talking about the fact that you're coming here for months. Yes. And they go, oh, I'm so behind. Yeah, no kidding. I was just saying to Ray, like, a couple of months from now, all of these Aussies are going to catch up to our various shows and go, What? Ray was in a... Why didn't you fucking tell me? He was right here. He Mm. was... Oh, my God. He's got to come back. Tell him to come back. Mm. Mm. Fuck you. Oh, yeah. Exactly. They said, said, we don't have have to... Oh, so busy. I'm like, oh, you're busy. Hold on. (laughs) We research the shows, record the shows, edit and upload the shows, and listen to the shows. I listen to all of our shows every week. If I have time to do all of that... And, you know, run a global empire and, you know, deep dick my wife and do all of those other and things de- that I do. Right. And defend Napoleon in Waterloo. Defend Napoleon. Make a documentary about Jesus. I have time to do all of that. You don't yeah. have time to listen to the fucking show. Really? Can't really. push play. Can't even push play. Really? Jesus. What? I mean, I have to imagine that they just have more important things to do than... <laughs> I, I can't. You'll never convince me of that. I can't believe what that could possibly be, but uh, I can't. Not not one thing. Children, stop, no. Stop watching fucking House of Cards and <laughs> listen to us. Kevin Spacey yeah. got nothing on us. Seriously, last season of House of Cards jumped the shark massively. Total waste of time. Don't do it. Better Call Saul, on the other hand, watched watched the finale of season three of Better Call Saul last night. Fucking brilliant. Just heartbreakingly brilliant. Anywho, that's my one episode of TV for the week. Um, Okay. Back to the Cold War show. At the end of our last episode, Ray. Yes. uh, They basically... Yeah. What? You're going to interrupt me? Okay, go. No, I'm sorry, we had that little lag. I pop- no, I was just going to say that Stalin cashed in his French chip, got uh, FDR to go along with him to a degree on reparations, but then Churchill, the pink pig who can speak with a magical voice, 
goes on and on and on, and he's so eloquent that FDR starts to waver again. Finally, Stalin sees where this is going. He goes, you know what? Okay, fine. We will leave it up to the reparations commissions, uh, commission. You bring your fig- we'll bring our figures to the commission. You bring yours, and we'll let them decide. So, again, the fact that they are going to talk about reparations is a good thing for Stalin. The fact that they're not going to lay out an exact amount is a good thing for Churchill. And then there's FDR uh, in the middle, who is once again Judge Roosevelt, uh, where he where he wants to be, you know, at all times, so he can be the deciding factor on these issues, whether he cares about them or not. And Churchill got what he wanted. They didn't agree to a number on reparations. As we mm-hmm. explained, Churchill's largely concerned, and this was verified by our esteemed guest, Sir He Plohe, Churchill's concerned about his upcoming elections, uh, doesn't want to give the opposition anything that they can use against him, and yet he's still disappointed out of this whole process, mostly, we think, by the fact that the Americans, Roosevelt in particular, seem to be siding with Stalin or with Churchill, depending on which minute you asked him because he was all over the place. And who was the last one to speak? Yeah. But the Americans kind of were happy, as we know, to get on board with Stalin's demands for reparations. They really didn't understand Churchill's stubbornness on the issue, according to the surviving records that we have. And I mean, I kind of... I'm surprised by that. I would think the Americans would understand that Churchill was worried about the upcoming election and, and want, how it was going to play in the media. That I understand that Stalin doesn't understand that because he was like, election? What is election? But, <laughs> but, but you would think the Americans would understand that. But Lord Moran explained to Harry Hopkins that Churchill's mind is full of what happened at the end of the First War. He thinks... The Russian demands a madness. Yeah, but I mean, no, no, and, hold on, hold on, hold on, and uh, <laughs> to which Harry Hopkins replied, "No, no, no, that's not madness. This is madness." Um, did, so he finished. He finished. S- he finished. He yeah. finished by saying, "Lord Moran, this is who he demanded angrily is going to feed a starving Germany." Sorry, go ahead. What? No, that's fine. That's fine. I mean, I mean, it's absolutely right. If you think about it, Churchill has some valid points. At the end of the last war, we treated Germany so shabbily that a madman, they had mass confusion, um, they had chaos, they had suffering, they had fighting in the streets, allowed a madman to rise to power. If we starve Germany to death, our people back in the UK and the US will not like that because that's you know, beating a, beating a man while he's down. We need Germany to be at least somewhat, uh, to have somewhat of an economic recovery so they can buy our goods. We don't want them producing, we want them buying. So they have to have some kind of economy uh, redeveloped after the war. So Churchill's got some some solid points, but at the end of the day, I think all that guy kind of gets lost. And so the Americans are like, come the fuck down. I mean, look at all these things they did. They deserve a little harsh treatment. And then you've got um, Stalin who doesn't give a shit about anybody but himself. I I think that's fine. But yeah, it just confuses everyone else. Why is Churchill going on and on and on? But he does have some legitimate, if if not over-commanding points that he's making. 
Hopkins also says to Moran, the Russians had given way a good deal at the conference. It was our turn to give something. We couldn't expect them always to climb down. And as we've pointed out, and Serhi Plohi pointed out when he was on the show, the Russians controlled Europe. They didn't have to give anything, really. The fact that Stalin was prepared to give way on any issue is an indication that he he was willing to deal. He he knew there were things that he needed his partners to agree on, so he had to give a little, take a little. Um, he couldn't, you know. I mean, he could ostens. I mean, honestly, if he, he could have phoned it they, in. Well, no, I was going to say if they didn't agree to reparations, he could have just said, "Well, motherfuckers, we will just take over Germany. Fuck you, and we right. will pay ourselves reparations. And if you don't like it, you know." I'll meet you at the battlefield tomorrow at nine o'clock. Let's see who has the bigger fucking army. I mean, he exactly. could have he could have taken that approach had he wanted to be belligerent. He Absolutely. could have said, "All right, well, deals off, motherfuckers. Let's you know." You, but but and I, and I don't think he gets enough credit for that, uh, particularly in American history books. Uh, the fact that he was willing to negotiate, willing to give up stuff, when, as Hopkins points out, he he didn't really have to. Yeah. I mean, and you're absolutely right, because his, his troops are a lot closer to Berlin than the Americans. They could have just kept on going, grabbed more of Germany, forget these partition lines everybody's talking about. He could have gone as far as he could have until he meets some Americans or some British soldiers, stops, absolutely rapes the land, takes it all back to Russia and paid himself that way, but he didn't because you're right. He's like, I need peace. I need at least 10, hopefully 20 years of peace. I can rebuild and then we'll see what's what. But for right now, I need to give a little bit and so I'm doing that and the Americans uh, and the and the British should be able to be able to do the same. So they're all thinking about the reputation of this Yalta meeting when they're all done, but at the same time everybody's angling. It, it's it's really an interesting balance. It's angled to get as much as we possibly can but at the end of the day come out all smiling so it looks like we actually work together and the world doesn't have to be afraid of another war at the end of world war Two. yeah yeah i mean you're right i mean he he didn't want another war um at least you know back to back with world war Two. right but he could have i mean it was an option uh, i'm not sure yeah. it was an option that any of his advisors or he suggested in their private tete-a-tetes, certainly no record I've seen of them saying, oh, fuck the Americans, let's just go to war again. But, I mean, I don't think the Americans or the British wanted or could... Uh, well, the Americans could afford another war, but uh, whether or not they could sell it back home might have been tricky. Yeah. But anyway. You have to do that in a democracy, yeah. You have to sell it. Stalin does, he just orders everybody to jump, and they jump. Yeah, exactly. Now, you bring up a good point, too, before, that one of the other reasons that we don't hear about much why Britain wanted the German economy to be functional after World War Two is they wanted to build their own economy. Now, how do you build your own economy? Well, you need to export products. Uh, and mm -hmm. they particularly wanted to export products to Germany. They wanted Germany weakened, but not totally destroyed. Now, we also know that running parallel to this, Roosevelt has been very firm with Churchill going right back to their first uh, meetings, uh, the Atlantic Conference, yeah. that after World War II, the uh, Commonwealth trading block is going to be opened up to American competition. 
which is going to make it even more difficult for England to rebuild its economy out of the war than um, it would have already been. So they, they want Germany, which has traditionally been a highly developed nation, to uh, be a customer of their products. Mm-hmm. Now, if Germany has no money because it's paying it all to Russia, then they're not going to be able to buy British products. So that's another reason. It's about economics. Yeah. If you take all their money and you take all their machines, their factories and everything inside the factories, they won't be able to to uh, buy anything from you unless you're willing to take a whole bunch of grain. But see, I, I find this whole, int- the whole this thing interesting because Stalin is getting frustrated to a degree with FDR because FDR keeps going back and forth. And I think you mentioned this on the last show. He kind of says to his own team, I think just loud enough for them all to hear, is it possible the United States and Britain have already agreed in this with each other? So even he, I think, to a degree is confused, even though he's got listening devices all over the place. Even he is confused about FDR's um, just going back and forth on this issue. And it just makes it interesting to me because FDR doesn't really give a shit. He just wants to be able to, to decide on this and move on to the next thing, whatever the next question is. But again, it's it's driving everybody crazy. Um, Stalin's not going to give up. Churchill keeps making his speeches. FDR keeps going back and forth. And finally, Stalin just says, fine, we'll just give it to the reparation uh, commission. But we're you damn sure can believe we're going to bring our figures. And our figures are going to be staggering. They're going to be massive. And they're going to blow the commission away because we could really ask for $50 billion and it would not be enough. Yeah, it's going to be tremendous, stag- tremendous, really, really great numbers. <laughs> You're not going to believe how great our numbers are. You're going to get so sick of our numbers being so great. Joe would have been the least happy of the three, even after they accepted his surrender. He supposedly remarked, and you want to go back on this tomorrow? Ooh! And they, in, re- in response, they said... Chills. Chills. The song always makes me cry. I mean, never. It never makes me cry. <laughs> anyway, the, the the great ironic thing about this, because I just did a show on Stalin a couple weeks ago, when the Bolsheviks were coming, when, coming into power in 1917, Lenin pretty much says, follow us and we will give you peace, bread, 
land and each country can decide it can have have self-determination that's what we're going to do for you and so you you go a couple of years you go through another war and so here's here's uh, stalin going i want their land for security and i want german money and goods for infrastructure so he, he he's doing the exact opposite of Lenin, and, and they tried to call him on it. But you've got to be honest. I mean, he, he's absolutely right. I need this corridor, this buffer zone, so you assholes won't come in here for a third time and try to take a, try to take everything over. But I also need money and infrastructure because you assholes, you, you Western European assholes, have wrecked everything in my country as far as from, I guess, from Western Europe to the Urals almost um, for the second time. And so I have to have these things. And Stalin doesn't think he's asking too much to have all of these things. Yeah, but it's even crazier than that because, you know, when the Bolsheviks came to power, they promised to end the imperialist war, World War I. Ah, the yeah. imperialists had caused the war. The Bolsheviks, were the communists, were going to, you know, put an end to it and conclude peace without annexations, without reparations. It's like, we don't need any of that. <laughs> Shit. Now... Here we are, whatever, 30-odd years later, 35, 36 years later. Um, Joe has the opposite agenda, as you said, but now he's yeah. being stymied by the imperialists. The imperialists <laughs> are the one <laughs> who are putting up an argument against yeah. his annexations and reparations. And <clears throat> a couple of years earlier than Yalta, back at the Moscow conference in 1943, Stalin had already given in to the Allies and agreed to right. take reparations in kind instead of cash and to limit the term of reparations to 10 years. They'd already been through one round of negotiations where he'd caved in. Now they're fighting him even on that. Wow. Yeah. So who, who's the one speaking through a mask saying, I have altered the deal. Pray that I don't alter it any further. <laughs> I mean, they're both, they're both, you know... Switching sides here, but he's going to go for what he wants, and, and like you said, possession is eleven tenths of the law, and he owns Eastern Europe. What the fuck are they going to do about it? Well, a lot, as it turns out. A um, few, few months later, when they have the bomb, yeah, but, <laughs> it all changes. Right, yeah, but at this at this point, they really do believe that they don't have any options. And like like we said before, they'd want to come out um, saying Yalta was a success, so they can only push this guy so much. And I think FDR, better than Churchill, knows that he's more of a political realist. I think Churchill's still an idealist in some ways, but FDR is just willing to stop at a certain point because he knows, you know, the guy owns the field, and you can only bitch about it so much. And at this point, let's recall, Churchill had never won an election. Uh, Churchill's won like 20 at this stage. Like, I think this is his 20th term as president already. Uh, he just, he was an <laughs> election winning machine. They renamed the country after him. Yeah. Yeah. If he hadn't died, he'd still be president today, Roosevelt. Today, exactly. Uh, Churchill couldn't fucking win an election. Um, but anyway, Soviet newspapers were already at this point. February 45, publishing articles asserting the right of the Soviet government to take possession of German plants and machinery in the occupied territory. But there was mm -hmm. some internal, well, at least one group in the Soviet Union that was sort of challenging this. And that came from the rank of the uh, League of German Officers, uh, which had been formed by the Soviets from German POWs in order mm -hmm. to sort of run anti-Nazi propaganda across the front lines, German to German, uh, Nazi to Nazi, anti-Nazi <laughs> propaganda. 
Which is a uh, an, 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 an interesting tactic. Um, not that different, I think, to what's happened in the U.S. out of Miami since uh, the you know Castro Revolution. You have all of these Cuban exiles in Miami that have been running anti-Castro uh, mm-hmm. propaganda back into Cuba. Deliberate tactic that you know was supported, funded by the CIA for decades, probably still is, through a bunch of different fronts to uh, try and use Cubans to create political uh, upheaval in Cuba. Yeah. So Stalin to make it look was like way it's ahead homegrown. of that. Yeah. 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 Stalin was way ahead of that, using Germans to uh, create anti-Nazi propaganda. According to secret police reports, the members of the League reacted to the news of, you know, raping the German economy with exceptional hostility. Yeah. Mm. Just a, a question real quick. You're, you're, a, you're a German officer. You, you've been fighting against Russia for the first year, year and a half. You're kicking ass. You're taking names, taking whatever you want. Eventually you get captured. And then what does a Soviet spy or a Soviet political, political officer have to say to you for you to go from fighting them to, yes, I will join this league of German officers? I mean, that's a hell of a... I don't know. That's a hell, that's a hell of a way to trick someone to get them to actually want to fight back against the Nazis that they were working for just a year and a half ago. I just I just find it astounding that Stalin was able to think this up and create it and get it off the ground within a you know relatively short time. I think what you say is, how many fingernails would you like to be left with when you leave Mother <laughs> Russia? All ten. Well, here, read this script. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, this vice would love to meet one of your balls. Uh, it's only a question of <laughs> vicey. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, man. But I mean, the fact, the more amazing thing to me is that they were uh, speaking out against this. Yeah, uh, quite publicly, not just in private, mm. but quite publicly. So you're a German POW in. Russia uh, speaking out against this when you're supposed to be part of the Russian propaganda campaign. I guess maybe they hoped that by being part of the Soviet propaganda uh, movement, after the war was over, uh, they would be sent back to Germany and they would probably be able to have a senior position in the German military again if they were friendly with the Russians I don't know, but the the League's leader, General Walter von Seidlitz, said, Where now are the unshakable principles and the right of nations to self-determination? The Russians have no right to give the Poles living space if they take it away from us. An occupation would be enough to ensure security. This is a policy of force. We still have much to learn about Leninist, Stalinist humanism. In other words, they're being screwed. They finally figured out they're being screwed, but it's pretty much too late for them to do anything about it. I just find it interesting that the League of German Officers was created 42-43 at the height of Barbarossa. These two, these two nations are just slugging it out, killing thousands of each other on a daily basis. It's getting ugly. Stalin has the foresight um, to 
create this league, hopefully can drive back into Germany, put them in, like you said, in positions of power and have some real influence uh, throughout Germany, just like during the Spanish uh, Spanish Civil War, when he uh, pretty much was running things uh, for Madrid and putting people in very influential uh, places, powers, places of position. But again, he's going to figure out really quickly, you know what, you're a big headache to me. It's not really working out the way I thought it was going to. I'm going to fucking own Berlin because my troops are going to be on there. I don't have to listen to your crap. You were a wild card if I needed you. But as it turns out, I don't think I need you. So the fact that you're upset doesn't really concern me all that much. Yeah. Oh. To put it nicely. Poor, poor fucking Nazis. Oh, we're so sorry <laughs> that you don't like our... Uh... <laughs> we're taking your land. Oh, we're taking your oh. money. Does that sound familiar, Nazis? <laughs> yeah. Really, you're a Nazi and you're criticizing our humanism. <laughs> really? Really? <laughs> Fuck you. Uh, this guy, General Walter von Seidlitz, uh, had an interesting story. He was... Uh, a general, uh, obviously, during the Battle of Stalingrad, he was mm-hmm. uh, part of the 6th Army. And when the army had been trapped in the city, he uh, was one of the generals who argued in favour of a breakout or a surrender, uh, which was a direct contravention of Hitler's orders. I don't know if you've done Stalingrad yet in your no, show. Not yet. No, not yet. Go ahead. Um, well, without wanting to, to give away too much to your show listeners, um, you know, he basically told his subordinates they were free to decide uh, for themselves on whether or not to surrender. Ooh. Hitler's orders were they were to stand and fight uh, rather than, you know, run away or, or, or surrender. Uh, he right. was relieved of command immediately when he left it up to his soldiers to make up their own decisions. And then uh, a few days later, he fled, was taken into Soviet custody, interrogated, uh, and then, again, you know, as we said, formed this League of German Officers. He was also made a member of the National Committee for a Free Germany, Mm. uh, sort of, a, 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 I guess, a pseudo-political group that was uh, set up with the idea or the propaganda version of the idea that they would be, you know, political force after Germany had been freed. Um, He was sentenced to death in absentia by Hitler, yeah. And then he suggested to the Russians that they create an anti-Nazi force of some 40,000 German POWs that should be airlifted into Germany. Um, which sounds like a good plot for a Tarantino movie. I was going to say, I would watch that movie, yeah. Yeah. You pay good money. But can you imagine the Russians? Right, so you want us to fly 40,000 Nazi prisoners back into Germany... And we're supposed to believe that you're going to fight other Nazis. Really? That's... Yeah. Do you think we're going to... We're going to give you arms. We're <laughs> yeah. going to give you weapons. We're going to take guns, you give, home. Give you planes. And then you're going to turn our kick ass. Really? Well, you think we're going to fall for that one? All right. Hey, i got a bridge. You want to sell you this bridge? Um, I don't think Stalin would... I don't think that would have got Stalin's signature, but I'm just guessing. In 1949, after the war was over, he was charged with war crimes for his role uh, as a Nazi general, uh, one of the generals in the Wehrmacht. Uh, In 1950, he was sentenced to 25 years imprisonment, which I reckon is, you know, he got off better than the guys who ended up at Nuremberg. But uh, in 1955, a couple of years after Stalin was dead, he was released 
to West Germany and uh, survived until 1976. Man. Damn, yeah. So there you go. Better than a lot of people ended up at the end of ropes, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. anyway. So that's uh, Von Steilitz. Another league activist, Colonel Hans Gunther Van Hooven, predicted that the decisions made at Yalta would strengthen the German resolve to fight, which is something that the Yalta guys were always worried about, right? They they were always worried that if they made public statements that sounded like they were going to be pretty harsh on Germany, Hitler would be able to use it against them to strengthen the German resolve. He said, I would just like to know where the line is actually to be drawn between enslavement and compensation for damages. It will not be difficult for Hitler to call for resistance to the utmost as the communique of the Crimean conference has nothing positive to say to the German people. Yeah, he's right. But at February, by February 1945, I mean, the Allies are kicking ass and taking names. So yeah, you certainly don't want the uh, to give the, the Nazis, the Germans, another reason to fight. And you are possibly going to lose a couple more men because they're going to go, oh my God, you're going to take our land. You're going to take some of our men for slaves. You're going to, you're going to take our factories. You're going to take money from us. You're going to leave us with nothing. So yeah, I'm going to fight harder. But they needed to start fighting harder about a year and a half ago, by February of 1945, it's not going to make that much of a difference. But as you can imagine, the leaders are absolutely, especially the Western leaders, are absolutely, uh, absolutely obsessed with ending the war as fast as they possibly can, with as few Allied casualties as they can, hence the two bombs that are about to be dropped on Japan. Mm. Now, Churchill, on February 10th, asks Stalin... Whether the German generals now in the hands of the Russians are going to be used for purposes other than propaganda. And Stalin replied, God forbid. (laughs) (laughs) No, this is all all we have them for is propaganda. What else are you doing, Nazi general? I don't know what, you know. Well, I'm only using them from propaganda, and they're not doing that very well because they're they're bitching and everybody's hearing about it. So yeah, he's he has probably no further use for these guys, and he can pretty much afford to ignore ignore them. Pro- propaganda and the occasional foot massage. What can I tell you? Um, Have you ever had a German rub your feet before? Oh my God, you've got to try this. <laughs> now, getting back to the reparations, the the figures that the Soviets are asking for at this point, ten billion. Yeah. Uh, according to Ivan Maisky's uh, figures, that only represents about 20% of Soviet war losses. Damn. So Stand from up. their perspective, it's not even much. It's, you know, a, a drop in the ocean. And, the, mm-hmm. and, and it's important to understand the, the, the big difference between repara- the impact of reparations for the Soviets and reparations for the Western countries. The Soviets could absorb unlimited reparations, goods, mad power, even cash, without creating unemployment because their economy was highly centralized. They didn't Mm -hmm. have to worry about producing enough goods to export for their economy because they couldn't even manufacture enough (laughs) stuff for their own people, for their own domestic requirements. Um, Whereas the Western countries had a different issue, right? They wanted to be able to export goods 
to Germany, the more stuff that you, let's say you bring in a lot of uh, machines, German machinery, mm-hmm. German labor into America. Well, every German machine that goes into America is a machine that doesn't have to be made by Americans, which is a problem for the American economy, American uh, jobs, you know, American right. businesses, American profits. Uh, and we already know the American economy has been touch and go for for. 50 years before the war. So uh, very different economic concerns that uh, the Soviets have and the Americans and the British have. And also, the Soviets didn't want the Western countries to rebuild German strength with their own exports. The very thing that Churchill was worried about, oh, we have to be able to sell our stuff to the Germans. Stalin's mm-hmm. like, fuck, fuck the Germans. I don't <laughs> want the Germans to be buying your stuff. You know, I, I don't want a strong Germany. I guess, and this is one of the big, becomes certainly, you know, through Potsdam and afterwards, becomes the big difference, I think, between their approaches to Germany. Russia yeah. wanted a weak Germany. You know, it's funny. From the Western perspective, uh, you know, we look at East and West Germany in the 60s and the 70s. Mm-hmm. And we go, oh, look at how well the West Germans are doing and how poorly the East Germans are doing. That's uh, all, it's, it's, you know, a testament to the right. capitalism and, and the great nature of capitalism and the poor nature of, uh, you know, centralised communist economies. Well, you know, look, there is an element to, uh, of truth to that. But the other side of the story is Russia didn't want East Germany to be doing well. That was the entire point. <laughs> Of the occupation was we don't want the Germans to be doing... We don't want them to have nice things. Exactly. We don't want to rebuild the... We just spent 20 million lives and $100 billion. What is it? 20%? $50 billion destroying Germany. We don't want a strong Germany. And, of course, the Americans and the British did yeah, partially... And I think for it was a large part of their thinking. Well, the two main things is they wanted a strong German economy that they could export their products to. Um, B, they wanted a strong military presence in Germany to, you know, hold off the Russians, basically. Right. Um, and other European nations that might get, like de Gaulle, or other European countries that may want uh, to, to expand their economic circle. So, I, I think it's interesting where the Americans and the British are like, okay, war is over and we're going back to our number one pastime, which is business, which is making money. And also, and, and I might be, this might be a bit of a stretch, but I don't think so. We are talking about Europeans. We are talking about people where the Americans came from. We are talking about people very close to them, white people. It's like, okay, the war is over. Let's get going again. Let's, let's, set up Germany so we can sell things to them and create a business and also so these people don't starve to death. I mean, these aren't people from the Middle East. These aren't people from Africa. They're our people. Let's take care of the take care of our fellow Europeans or our fe- fellow Western uh, people if you will. But even, but like you said with, with Stalin, I mean, he's like, look I hired Michael Caine himself to play the part of me with a very impassioned 
speech where, where Michael Caine goes on, this is a matter of life and death for us. So Stalin is not fucking around. I don't give a shit if everybody in Germany dies right now. They just fall dead. I don't care. I'm going to go in there and I'm going to take what I want and I'm going to secure this place so you people cannot come in. And here again, the fact that they just cannot, the American, the Western powers cannot wrap their head around that. It's just got to be so frustrating for him because it's for him, it's issue number one and there is no issue number two. It's all about security. Yeah. Security and, and also rebuilding their own economy. Right. Um, for, but again, for security reasons, so they can afford shit because they know they're going to have to keep up with the Americans because their weapons and all that stuff is pretty impressive as they can seem as the two forces are coming closer together. And, of course, we have to remember that whilst the Americans didn't have the bomb yet, Stalin knew that they were working oh, yeah. on the bomb. Oh, yeah. He knows. Yeah. Nobody I really knew. Diary. Nobody really knew if it was going to be successful if it was or not, if it was going to work. But, um, you know, he, he certainly... He knows they're working on it. Yeah, yeah. And he knew it was a game changer, as, of course, it was. Um. Now, interestingly, something that I didn't understand until I was putting this uh, episode together is that there was a, a a trap that Pooh Bear had already been warning Stalin about for years <laughs> that the USSR ended up falling into. After right. World War One, the Germans had paid Britain as part of the reparations uh, with old ships, mm-hmm. while the Germans built a modern navy for themselves. Brilliant! That is brilliant. <laughs> Here, take these. Yeah, because they're worth a lot of money. But we're going to build new ones that we—they're going to be so awesome, and, and those are going to be obsolete. We don't have to worry about the fact that you'll have even more ships because they're so old. I mean, that is just fucking brilliant. You give—it's like giving them the hand-me-downs, and you go out and buy brand new clothes for yourself. <laughs> look at you! Then you bang uh, your sister because you look so good. But anyway, <laughs> their wife. Uh, the, the Soviets ended up getting all of this machinery from Germany that was old and obsolete. And the Soviets, because their economy stayed defunct for decades, ended up using those old obsolete German machines well into the 1980s. Damn. What does that say about German uh, craftsmanship? Well, that's... Yeah, yeah. I mean, they know how to make shit, the Germans. Um, But you're right. I mean, if the Soviet Union has to use these machines through the 80s, yeah, what does that say about their economy versus the West? Well, and and, yeah, but it was... But again, I mean, let's not forget that America wasn't... Didn't have the shit bombed out of it and didn't lose 20 million people. So... Absolutely. Yeah, look, there are definitely advantages that decentralized capitalism has, particularly, let's remember, back to our economics episodes, particularly when it's being funded by military Keynesianism, mm-hmm. um, where you're able to suck all of this money out of the taxpayers, uh, drive it into military research and development, uh, and then that trickles back down into the economy. The Russians got themselves into an arms race, and instead of spending money on rebuilding their economy and their people, they had right. to build bombs and guns and planes because they were worried that uh, the Americans were going to come and finish what the Nazis started. And, uh, you know, I think that was a genuine concern, and, and they were right to be genuinely concerned with it. Yeah, and, and to add on to that, I can't remember exactly what year 
the Soviets got the bomb. I think it was 51 or 52. I can't remember. But yeah, from 45 to 51, the Americans have the atomic bomb. Soviets don't. So yeah, they better have as many troops on the ground with tanks, planes, you know, everything you could possibly have. So yeah, they're going to invest again just to survive. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the final point on Germany, I guess, is after three days of debates... Um, the the outcome was kind of mixed. They agreed that the main Nazi war criminals would be tried, but they didn't put that in the final declaration. They agreed France would be on the control commission, but de Gaulle still wasn't happy. <laughs> he can't be happy. It's impossible. He's French. Uh, yeah. They agreed to set up a reparations commission, but they didn't agree on the instructions it would be issued. <laughs> Frank didn't really care about any of this shit. He changed his mind constantly. He just wanted it to be over. He was old and sick and tired, and he got what he wanted most, the United Nations. Now, I just want to go back for a second. So I find it interesting that they don't, in their final communique of Yalta, announce that the main Nazi war criminals will be tried. Obviously, they're thinking about uh, their own allied POWs uh, spread throughout Germany. And I think roughly... 2% 2% of the American POWs did not make it out alive. So that so that's pretty good. I mean, yes, it's sad to lose 2% of your of the people who were captured by the Nazis, but 2% is not bad. It could have been a lot worse if that they'd come out and said, you know, we're going to go to town once once we subdue your country, we're going to kill a lot of your leaders. Yeah, that's going to piss the Germans off. And again, I don't know what it would have taken to make de Gaulle happy. You just get the sense that he wanted to be invited to Yalta. He wanted to talk for four or five days straight, have everybody listen to him and do exactly what he said and make France the center of the universe. But again, I just, which is fine because he's French, I just don't get how he could be disappointed that none of that happened when Stalin was right. I mean, they got their but kicked it in six weeks back in May and June of uh, 1940. Yeah. French. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, we, we, we know what Churchill's agenda was there. We talked about it. Serhi Plohi talked about it. Mm-hmm. So Churchill, uh, coming out of Yalta, got what he wanted, Mostly. France had that Mm -hmm. seat at the table. Uh, He got what he wanted in terms of the Security Council voting. Uh, He got what he wanted in terms of the Control Commission of Germany. He had limited the Soviet demands for reparations. So he he had a pretty successful conference. Um, But he's still not happy, as we said, mostly because... Uh, Roosevelt just wasn't on his side as much as he wanted him to be. And and from the get-go, Roosevelt wouldn't sit down and have a tete-a-tete with him at Yalta. And <laughs> uh, I think that upset him a little bit. Yeah, I mean, even when they met in Malta, he said, look, we've got we've to come up with a plan before we meet. And he's like, no, 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 let's go sightseeing. FDR purposefully did not do that. It upsets Churchill. And, and it's so sad that these two... Because if, if you go back to the war, these two really, really, really came together. They made an excellent team. They they were just there for each other. They sacrificed. But by the end of the war, everybody has different needs. And it's time to go your own separate way. So for a while, it was an incredible friendship and a working relationship. But everybody has to take care of their own. And that's what happens uh, to these two men as the war progresses. You know, I, 
I think it was always uh, a matter of practicalities for both of them. I, I, I don't. Mm-hmm. I mean, they had a good working relationship, but you know, we we remember back in that very first meeting they had on the boat, you know, in Newfoundland, the the Atlantic mm-hmm. Charter meeting. Even at the get go, Roosevelt was saying to Churchill, "Listen, we will help you, but when this is all over, yeah, bust it up." British Empire is done. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So we, it's yeah. It's not like uh, you know he, Roosevelt was giving Churchill everything he wanted from day one. From day one, it was all about America for Roosevelt. Uh, yeah. As, and that's as, his job. Yeah, as that's his job, as it should be. And and uh, so I, I don't think him. You know, I don't think he was turning on Roosevelt uh, on Churchill at Yalta. I think he was just, uh, you know. Being practical, finishing the, the job, course. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I just, just to be real quick, just imagine yourself being picked to be one of the leaders of the Reparation Commission. You get there, no set instructions, no set amount. There's a whole bunch of facts and figures that are going to be flown, uh, thrown at you from Stalin, from FDR, and from Churchill. I mean, oh my God, talk about a hot seat! What in the hell are you supposed to do with that? Yeah. Well, we'll get to that at some point in a future show. Um, so I guess the, the last question, and, and this is, we've already talked about this with Plohi, but I guess we, as we conclude these Yalta episodes, we need to um, pour, pose the big question, the, the question that has been asked ever since by historians and by people interested in, in the genesis of the Cold War. Could Churchill and Roosevelt have fought harder at Yalta over the future of Poland? Yeah. Um, and I, I just find it interesting because we now know, because of Mr. people like Mr. Plokey, their books and the research that's been done, Soviet sources suggest, you know what? Not really. Stalin knew exactly what he needed. He knew what his priorities were. He didn't give a fig for Western or Central Europe. All that mattered to him was Eastern Europe, the part that he was going to control to protect his country. He wasn't concerned uh, about whether Germany recovered. He wasn't concerned about France's place in the history books or being at the big conference table or whatever. All that mattered to him was security for his nation uh, and for his, uh, for his country. And so... I don't think there's anything they could have done except for war. I don't think there's anything they could have said. I don't think there's any deal they could have made to make Stalin change his mind on Poland. And like we've said, ad nauseum, he owns it. He he controls it. And he's killing people left and right. He's torturing people. He can do whatever he want, wants. And they can't do anything about it. And I think FDR, more than Churchill, recognized that fact. Yeah. You know, it's it's very doubtful in my mind that Stalin would have given in uh, on the question of control of Eastern Europe. I mean, he cared about reparations. He wanted to weaken Germany. But what he cared about most was the country right on his border, Poland. As yeah. you've said a number of times, it was used to invade Russia twice in Stalin's lifetime. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wasn't going to let it happen again. He already occupied it, so there wasn't much they could really do about it apart from go to war with right. uh, Russia straight away. But I guess my concluding thoughts is as the Yalta Conference comes to a close, 
whilst they've had some good times and some yucks and some <laughs> oiled up threesomes uh, and all that kind do. of good stuff, exactly. It's obvious that Stalin still doesn't trust the other two. And I think the feeling is mutual. Yeah, I think they might have a much better sense of each other. And now they can actually, with some more harder evidence, not trust each other. They can actually base it on something. I think Stalin and Roosevelt have a relatively good understanding and working relationship. I Mm -hmm. think they both genuinely want to work with the other. I think they both see Churchill as an annoyance more than anything. Mm -hmm. Um, But, uh, of course, as we will see, doesn't really matter about the relationship between Stalin and Roosevelt because once Roosevelt's dead, all, all bets are off. And that is the end of episode 52. A little bit shorter than our usual episode, but I think that'll do. The last uh, last Cold War show we'll do before I head over. Hopefully won't get arrested and spend months in an Australian prison, but maybe I will. We'll see. We'll have to see what happens. <laughs> uh, yeah, so um, there may be a gap in shows uh, depending on what happens to our recording schedule when Ray is here, but we will be back at some point uh, in the not-too-distant future with what happened after Yalta. I mean, we've got a little bit of Yalta left, just like handshakes, just kisses tip. on the cheeks. Oh, just, right. Right. just them all getting the fuck out of there and what happens next. But here, we, we're nearly done. I think I don't know how many episodes we've done on Yalta, man. But, uh, Shit ton. Yeah, I think it's 20, maybe. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, something like that. Something. Anyway, it's been fun. All right, we're yeah. out. Peace. An iron curtain has descended across the continent. Of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than...